are listening to Revelation, God Wins, from Coram Deo Church, a gospel-centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com. Today's scripture reading comes from the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 4 and 5. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their thrones, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed And were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain 
and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. I've got one announcement for the men. Uh, An important event you need to know about coming up on May 13th and 14th. That is the Coromdale Women's Retreat. All right? What that means is you're off work that weekend, you're watching the kids, uh, you're the the important women in your life, wife, girlfriend, mom, sister, whoever, we want you freeing them up to attend the women's retreat, all right? So uh, just a word for you guys, I want you to start planning ahead calendar-wise. There'll be more information uh, coming out next week as far as the women's retreat, so just be aware of that. When is the last time you can remember being overwhelmed with a sense of awe? Or wonder. Perhaps some of you have had the experience of standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon or on the summit of Pikes Peak. Uh, maybe you've had the privilege of seeing the sunset over the Pacific Ocean, or maybe you've been up north in the summertime and seen the northern lights in the sky at night. Experiences like that tend to tap that ancient nerve of, of awe, of of wonder, of astonishment. And so I just want you to sort of conjure up and remember that, that feeling, what you feel and sense in that moment. The sad thing is that you have to think about it to remember that feeling. The modern world has made it hard to be astonished at anything, hasn't it? Uh, Perhaps you have seen The Wizard of Oz, which is, incidentally, the most watched film in history. So I'm assuming most of you have seen it, since that's the statistical fact. And you remember the plot line of that movie, the climax comes when Dorothy and her companions come to the Emerald City to meet the Wizard of Oz, and the Wizard of Oz is sort of this frightful being, and he hovers above his throne, and there's lightning and thunder, and all kinds of fire and smoke, and... As Dorothy's having this conversation with the Wizard of Oz, her dog Toto runs off to the side and goes behind a curtain and opens that curtain to reveal that that the Wizard of Oz is actually just an old, frail man speaking into a microphone and working a bunch of levers. And you remember, as as he's being found out, the man says, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, but the charade is up, Right? The Wizard of Oz is a metaphor for what has happened in Western culture since the time of the Enlightenment. 
It used to be that people explained the world by reference to the supernatural. There were gods and spirits that were at work in the world, and that explained the way things were. But then the Enlightenment philosophers came along and and pulled back the curtain, as it were. They explained to us that everything had a perfectly natural explanation. The universe was a closed system of cause and effect. Everything can be explained by perfectly natural causes. There's no need to appeal to something outside the system, some God, some higher power, some supernatural deity. Everything can be explained from naturalistic presuppositions. And so in the wake of the last few hundred years, we live in an age when being a Christian is sort of an odd novelty, isn't it? Uh, to say that you believe in a sovereign God uh, comes across a little bit like saying that you believe in the Wizard of Oz. I mean, we've pulled back the curtain, haven't we? What's there to believe in? There is no God, right? But what if, what if that explanation of the story is exactly backwards? What if it's actually the Enlightenment philosophers who are the ones hiding behind the curtain, pulling the levers? What if that sense of awe that you have when you you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, what if that is a hint, a clue to something that is frighteningly and fearfully and awesomely true? That's exactly the point of Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Apocalyptic literature is meant to be culturally subversive. It is written to unmask the folly of the dominant ways of thinking, sort of the the well-established cultural paradigm. And so in the book of Revelation, God is pulling back the curtain on the naturalistic, humanistic explanation of things. In fact, you might say that Revelation is less like the Wizard of Oz and more like the Matrix. Uh, There is more to reality than what can be seen and touched and tasted. And so really in these chapters of Revelation, God is inviting you to take the red pill and see how deep the rabbit hole goes. Now, I want to remind you that this is visionary literature. John is seeing a vision, and he's describing for us in writing what it is that he saw. Uh, Someone suggested to me a a good analogy or metaphor for you to think about, because I think when you hear the word vision, you think hallucination, right? Like a little too much. And uh, so I'm not sure you have a category for what is this, what's happening to John, all right? If you saw the movie the Lord of the Rings. You remember Frodo's carrying around this ring that has power to it. And, and there's scenes in the movie where he puts that ring on his finger. And as soon as he does, he's sort of ushered into this different reality. And he sees things that are really going on, but that he's not seeing with his physical eyes. He sees into the nature of things. He sees this struggle between good and evil. And it's frightening and scary and mysterious. And then he takes the ring off and he's back in his normal world. 
Uh, that's a little bit what John is experiencing here. He's, he's having a vision that, as it were, ushers him into a, a deeper level of reality. He's seeing things as they really are, things he doesn't understand, things that are mysterious, things that are real, but he doesn't yet have a category for understanding what they all signify. And so he's just telling us, here's, here's what I saw. And so in chapters 4 and 5, we see another vision that John has. And to help you make sense of this vision, to help you get your mind around this chapter, uh, I want to talk you through three things, or show you three things in these chapters this morning. Uh, I want you to see the clue to the vision, the focus of the vision, and the meaning of the vision. All right? Since John is having a vision of heaven being opened to him, I want to show you the clue to the vision, the focus of the vision, and the meaning of the vision. So first of all, the clue to the vision. We encounter this right at the beginning, Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Uh, the clue to this vision is found in the words, Come up here. In the Bible, spatial language like this often stands for frame of reference. It's an indicator to a new frame of reference. I want to give you an example, not from Revelation, but from the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the books of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Uh, maybe you've read it if you were feeling depressed about life. Uh, it's a favorite book of angsty 20-somethings everywhere. Uh, Connor Oberst, I'm guessing, has spent some good time in Ecclesiastes. And the constant refrain of the book of Ecclesiastes is, Life is meaningless. Life is vain. Life has nothing to, no meaning and no purpose. But there's a really, really crucial, important phrase that we encounter 27 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 14, the writer says, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Chapter 9, verse 9, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and your toilsome labor under the sun. This phrase, under the sun, is a clue for frame of reference. It appears over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. What the writer is saying is, look, if this is all there is... If there's no God, if there's no eternity, if there's no higher realm, if there's no deeper reality, if it's just this life under the sun, then it's meaningless. I've tried everything there is to do. I've seen everything there is to see. If this is all there is, life is meaningless. Under the sun clues you into the frame of reference for the book. Likewise, in Revelation 4 and 5, the clue to the vision is Jesus' invitation to John to come up here. Okay, once again, under the sun, right, is spatial language, but it's implying a frame of reference. Come up here is, has the indication of up, but it's all about frame of reference. What, what Jesus is essentially saying to John is, hey, let me show you what's really going on. Let me give you a vision or a picture of what's actually happening uh, apart from the sort of under-the-sun life that you 
live. Let me usher you into God's perspective on the world, God's perspective on history, the real, true reality of how things are actually going to play out. What you can't see from your perspective, I'm now going to show you. So that's the clue to the vision. Come up here. Now let me show you, secondly, the focus of the vision. Uh, You don't have to be a genius to catch this. There's a piece of furniture that's referred to 17 different times in these chapters. If you were listening well when you heard it read, you probably caught it. What is it? The throne. The focus of these two chapters is the throne of God. The throne is mentioned over and over again, and everything else John sees is defined by its relationship to the throne, right? Some things are in front of the throne, near the throne, under the throne, around the throne. Everything is defined by how it is oriented to the throne of God. Okay, so the throne is obviously a symbol of reign, authority, power, control, who is the one that is in charge, who is being worshipped, who is sovereign over reality, God is on the throne. The throne is the dominant center of John's vision. Listen, remember, this letter is written as a comfort to the people of God. Because here we are, we live in the world... We deal with brokenness all around us, brokenness within us. Life is not as it should be. We live under the effects of the fall. In addition to that, the church is persecuted, misunderstood, mistreated. There's a sense of abiding, withstanding, suffering, and misunderstanding. We looked at that last week in the letters to the seven churches. The encouragement is this. Listen, God is on throne. So whatever's going on in life, whatever seems hard to deal with, whatever turmoil and trouble and doubt and frustration and fear and anxiety reigns in your life, listen, God is on the throne. You have to be anchored by that vision that this does not describe everything that is, regardless of the chaoticness of your life. Regardless of the brokenness of a fallen world, God is on the throne. God is in charge. And so there's great comfort and great joy just in knowing that. And the obvious center of these two chapters is to reinforce that you see and know and understand. Look, God is on the throne. God has not lost control of the universe. This is not a reckless car spinning out of control about to crash. God is on the throne. That's the focus, the center of the vision. So, the clue to the vision is come up here. The center or the focus of the vision is the throne of God in heaven. Let's look now at the meaning of the vision. What what does this mean? What's the point? Why is John seeing this? What are we to see as we encounter this vision of God on the throne being worshipped by his heavenly court? The meaning really could be summed up this way. God is the only one who deserves to be worshipped. 
God is the only one who deserves to be worshipped. These two chapters of Revelation are a crescendo of continuous worship. Right? All you see in these two chapters is people worshipping God, people praising God, people falling down before God. It starts with four living creatures worshipping God, then four living creatures and elders worshipping God, then four living creatures, elders, and angels worshipping God, and then four living creatures, elders, angels, and every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth all worshipping God. There's just this crescendo of worship. The point, the meaning, the thing that's trying to get communicated is that God is the only one who deserves to be worshipped. And I want you to be clear, worship is not something that just happens in heaven. This scene in Revelation is heavenly worship. Right? It's the beings that are in heaven worshiping God. The worship is not just something that happens in heaven. The word worship is from the Old English, worth-ship. In other words, we worship whenever we ascribe worth, value, importance, weightiness, significance, prominence to someone or something. Worthship is merely the, the valuing of something, the prizing of something, holding something as meaningful or important. And so make no mistake, all of us worship. If you are an atheist and you are here this morning, you are still a worshiper. The question is merely what do you attribute worth to? What do you see and hold as valuable? As weighty. All of us ascribe worth to something. And so in order for Revelation 4 and 5 to have the, the weight, the, the, the resonance in your life that it needs to, I want to ask you to first of all step back and just ask the question, what other things do I worship? Even if you know the right answer is, well, I shouldn't worship anything else, I should worship God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what other things do you ascribe value to? What other things do you find important or weighty? Let me ask you a number of questions to just help you examine your own soul. Not all these questions will resonate with all of you, but I I think one or two of them perhaps will. So let me just ask you to reflect on your life through the lens of these questions. What are you seeking after or aiming for or pursuing? What do you fear or worry about? On whose shoulders does the well-being of your world rest? Who can make it better, make it work, or make it safe? Whom must you please? Whose opinion of you counts? What do you see as your rights? What do you feel entitled to? What do you think about most often? What does your mind tend to drift toward when you're not thinking of something else? What instinctively seems and feels right to you? What do you feel like doing? 
To what do you turn in order to escape, to get away? What is it that you're escaping from? These questions should help you assess what it is in your life that you are attributing worth or value to. What Revelation 4 and 5 is intending to do is is to unmask those things in your life. To to ask the question, really? Do those things really have the same value, worth, importance, beauty as God himself? See, those things may be, in fact, what we worship. What what Revelation wants you to see is none of those things deserve your worship. That doesn't mean you won't find yourself worshiping them, ascribing value to them, causing them to hold weight in your life, but, but they don't deserve your worship. God is the only being in the universe that deserves your worship. And in Revelation 4 and 5, we essentially see two major reasons why God is the only one who deserves worship. And they're in the two sort of hymns or ascriptions of praise, the two songs that are sung in these two chapters by those beings that are around the throne. God is the only being who deserves to be worshipped, first of all, because He is Creator. Revelation 4, verse 11. The elders and living beings in heaven are casting their crowns before the throne, and this is what they say. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for... Okay, for is an explaining word. It's going gonna, it's gonna to explain. Why is God worthy? For you created all things. Here's the first reason why God is worthy of worship, why God deserves worship, is because God is creator. Everything else besides God is created. Okay? There's a distinction. There's a massive line between the creator and everything that he has created. The first reason that God deserves worship is because he made what is. He is the only one who creates from nothing who spoke the world into existence. That sense of awe that you feel when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, that is your soul crying out in worship to the Creator. That's something in you recognizing a being is behind this beauty. What is did not just randomly get here by accident. There is a creator, and because there is a creator, he is the only one that deserves and is worthy of worship. Listen, the first act of worship in your life is simply for you to come to the conviction that you were created and that there is a creator. That that realization in itself is the beginning of worship. Because the Bible says all of us are prone to make ourselves our own gods. And therefore, we resist 
any accountability to some being, some creator, some higher authority. And so in those moments of your life where you recognize there is something greater than me, I am a created being and there is a creator. That's the the beginnings of worship. God is worthy of worship, first of all, because He is the creator. Uh, But secondly, we see that He's also worthy of worship, not just because He's the creator, but because He is the redeemer. In Revelation chapter 5, uh, we meet Jesus. Right? Revelation 5, there's this scroll and it's sealed up and no one is found in heaven or on earth who can open the scroll, who can let us into what's going on, who is sovereign and who has power and authority to reveal God's word and God's plan. And then we meet this one who is like a lamb who was slain, who is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. All of these are Old Testament metaphors. If you look in your margin, you can go read the cross references. They're all Old Testament names pointing to Jesus. So we meet Jesus. He comes. He is able to open the scroll and look at the worship that is given to Jesus in chapter 5, verse, well, start in verse 8, that the same Creatures who in chapter 4 are worshiping God, we read those same creatures are now falling down before the Lamb and worshiping Him. Okay, this is crucial for your Trinitarian theology. Right? Jesus gets worship from the beings in heaven, just like God gets worship from the being in heaven. Jesus is God. Jesus is worshipped. Jesus is not subject to, underneath, less than God. Jesus is God. The same beings who are falling down before the throne now fall down before the Lamb and ascribe worship and praise to Him. And what do they say? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now, look again. For, why? Why 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 are you worthy? For you were slain. And by your blood... You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God deserves your worship not only because He is Creator, but because He is Redeemer. These heavenly beings worship Jesus because He was slain. And by His blood, By his death, he ransomed a people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. He has called people out of their darkness, out of their sin, out of their original state, and he has made them, it says, a kingdom and priests to our God. He has made a people, a new people out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Jesus, by his death, has called people to himself, set them apart for God. And so Jesus is worshipped because of his work of redemption. I want you to notice the focus on the fact that he was slain on his blood. It is, in every way, his death that has accomplished something that allows him then to gather these people and ransom them and set them apart for God and for his purposes. It's crucial that you see this. You may be aware that two weeks ago, a new book came out 
written by Rob Bell, a young kind of rock star pastor uh, in Michigan. And it's called Love Wins. And it's sort of stirred up a big storm because the case that he's making in that book is essentially that hell is not what we think it is. That hell is what we make it to be. Hell is sort of, you know, what we get out of the psychological damage that we have for rejecting God and rejecting His love. But that ultimately, there's no hell, there's no punishment. Everyone ultimately will be reconciled to God. Love, in the end, wins. And people have asked me, you know, hey, have you read the book? What do you think? What's your opinion on this whole thing? Here's what I want to... Here's what I want you to notice. If you listen to Rob Bell and others like him talk about Jesus, you need to pay attention to what they say. Because what you'll see is they talk a lot about Jesus' life. About how loving, sacrificial, wonderful he was. About how he was giving and how he served others and how we should pattern our lives after him and seek to live in the world the way Jesus lived in the world. And all of that is true. And I have no problem with any of that. But what you'll notice is that's all they say. You will not hear Rob Bell and many of the people who sort of believe the same things he does talk at all about Jesus' death. Unless they say, Jesus died for what he believed in. And that's an example of sacrifice. It's he believed so strongly in his convictions he was willing to die for them. What you will never hear is that Jesus' death accomplished something. The reconciliation of sinners to God. And so listen, when you hear people talk about Jesus and all they talk about is his life and how we should be like him and they don't explain how it is his death that enables us to be like him, big problem. Notice that in the book of Revelation, all of the beings in heaven are worshiping the lamb primarily for what? The fact that he was slain and that by that death he purchased, he ransomed a people. That's what Jesus is worshipped for. The angels in heaven are not gathering around Jesus, bowing down as a model of self-sacrifice and how humane he was. They are bowing down, worshipping him for his death and what it accomplished. So, the clue to the vision is come up here. The focus of the vision is the throne, the center of authority and reign. And the meaning of the vision is this. God is the only being who deserves your worship. And he deserves it because he is creator, because he is redeemer. Now, what are we to do with all of this? One of the biographers who described Jonathan Edwards' preaching said that Edwards' preaching essentially came down to this, logic on fire, which is, I think, what all good preaching ought to be, right? There's logic, there's truth that is delivered, but it's on fire. There's passion and emotion, and it is felt. 
I think that's exactly what worship is supposed to be too. Uh, We worship in response to truth. There, There is truth that guides and governs and structures our worship, but it is also to be on fire. There is joy and passion and emotion and feeling that is to be present. The point of these chapters is not merely to convince you intellectually that God is the only one who deserves worship. The point of these chapters is to stir something in your soul. To to make you feel something. And here's the problem. A lot of us have a disconnect between fact and feeling. Don't we? You can have the right facts in your head. A lot of you guys... You would agree with the truth that God is deserving of worship. But that doesn't mean you feel it all the time. And the problem is, what drives you is feeling, right? What really animates you, what what really drives you, has a lot more to do with what you feel and experience than just what you know and reason to be true. Dallas Willard has this great quote. He says, feelings live on the front row of our lives like a needy child clamoring for attention. Now, that's a good description, isn't it? I mean, feelings are the things that are right now, present tense. They're on the front row. They need our attention. They demand that we listen to and heed them. And so, if you know that God is worthy of worship, but you do not feel any sense of, of joy and wonder and longing in that, you will not be very worshipful. If you feel lonely, depressed, afraid, anxious, those feelings will tend to be what drive you. They have the most value. They have the most weight. They will be the worthiest things in your life. You understand how I'm using that? They, they are what has the most value. They are the thing that you put the most stock in. So, what is it that can change that? What is it that can cause us to actually feel, not just know God is worthy of our worship, but actually long to worship Him, actually feel worshipful toward Him, actually have a disposition in our hearts that that sense of awe and wonder and astonishment is not unusual, but fairly normal. What can make that happen for us? The answer is right here in Revelation 5. The answer is what makes that happen is the experience of being ransomed. Look again at Revelations 5, 9 and 10. Did I just say Revelations? Because I've made fun of you for doing that, so don't say that. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language of people and nation. Okay? The word ransomed is an important word. It assumes that I am in slavery to something, that I need to be freed from something. The book of Romans says, I'm a slave to sin. What I'm enslaved to, what I'm in bondage to, is sin. And what I need is to be 
ransom, what Jesus did on the cross is to free me from that master, to unchain me from that bondage so that I now serve Jesus. I'm now a servant of God by virtue of what Jesus has done for me. And now I joyfully am free to serve God instead of being bound to and chained to my sin and my foolishness. Jesus died to free you. And and listen, if that's happened to you, if, if you know what that feels like, if it's fresh in your mind, the things that you used to be chained to that Jesus has freed you from, then listen to me, you will worship. You will feel worship. You will have a sense of awe and wonder and weightiness for who God is and what he did. And listen, if you don't have that sense, it means one of two things. Either you've never experienced that freedom. You've never experienced Jesus setting you free from sin. Or you've forgotten. You've let it grow dull in your memory. You've let it exist in the past. Which we know is true because that's the story of the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, God redeems his people from slavery in Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea. All of Pharaoh's army dies in the Red Sea. He brings them into the promised land. He provides for them. And for the rest of the Old Testament, what do they do? Continually forget that. And so, poets and prophets write songs about it and preach sermons about it, calling God's people, hey, hey, remember Don't forget what God did for you. Don't you remember what he set you free from? Why would you let that grow dull in your memory? Tell yourself that story. Keep that fresh in your mind. We need the same thing. The way you stoke your affection for God is to continually remember, what have you been set free from? To continually rejoice with the people around you. What are they being set free from? Right? It's not just your own worship and what God set you free from. It's, man, how is God at work in the people around me? If you have present tense stories of how you've seen God redeem you and free you from sin, and even if that happened a long time ago, if you continue to rest in that and remind yourself of that and experience the, the fruit of that, you'll find it easy to worship. The only people that have a hard time worshiping are people who have forgotten what it's like to be set free. This past Friday night, we welcomed some new members, commissioned some new members into our church, which is something we do every two or three months. And uh, one of the things we like to do is just hear stories of, man, how has God's grace worked in your life? What's, What's happened? How has God gotten you to where you are? Uh, one of the guys, his story was, listen, when I, when I met Jesus, I was a year into divorce. I mean, the papers were in my truck, ready to get delivered. I met Jesus. God started changing my heart. I started praying for my wife. God started changing her heart. Five years later, that whole marriage has been put back together. God has totally redeemed everything that was broken. All of my selfishness and sin and stubbornness got broken apart. I have a new sense of love and joy in my wife. That, that's, that's his story of redemption. God saved me out of selfishness, and I, I didn't have a category for what sin was, and then I met Jesus, and all that started to change. There's a guy sitting across the circle from that guy. You know what his story is? 
God redeemed me from my right theology. Because I was prideful. I'd been raised in a good family, good home, good church, good schooling. I had all the categories right. I was so prideful in what I knew and how I was more right than everybody else. I had this sort of prideful air about me. Man, the gospel wrecked that. And the story of my redemption is God humbling me, tearing down that pride, helping me to love him and serve him. See, some of you, your story is, I got redeemed out of irreligion. I got redeemed out of selfishness and all kinds of sin. And some of you is, I got redeemed out of pridefulness and religiosity and legalism and all of that. But either way, you you have to know and rejoice in what you've been set free from. You've got to consistently and continually remember that. Listen, that's why we love telling stories of what God has done. That's why in most of our missional communities right now, that's what we're doing is just, hey, tell your story. What's the story of your life? How have you seen God work redemption in your life? Or how is he working redemption right now? Or how do you want him to work redemption in the future? Because guess what? That's the fabric of worship. That's not something different than worship. Telling those stories is worship. Read the Old Testament. Read the Psalms. There's a bunch of Psalms that are just telling the story of God getting his people out of slavery. Remembering that, rehearsing that, is worship. And so listen, this morning, you you need the facts in your head. You need to know the truth that God is the only one who deserves your worship. You also need to feel that he's worthy of worship. And part of how you feel that is by remembering what it's like to be set free. So let me ask you two questions. What have you been set free from? Or, what do you need to be set free from? One is a way that you worship God right now for what he's already set you free from. One is a way you prime your heart to worship God for what he still needs to do in your life. What have you been set free from? What do you need to be set free from? Let's pray together. God, when we read the Bible, we like to think that we're real different from the people in it. And the truth is that we are not. And just like the people throughout the Old Testament had a propensity to forget what you had done, we are the same way. We too are prone to forget and to leave in the past the work that you have done to redeem us. And God... My sense is there's some here this morning that haven't even yet experienced redemption, whether it's from a life of irreligion or a life of religion. God, there are some here who are prideful in their theology and in their rightness and in the good life that they've lived, and they need the gospel to wreck them. There are some who are right now steeped in lives of irreligion and selfishness and self-absorption, and they're making a wreck of other people's lives around them, and they need the gospel to wreck them. So God, I pray you would graciously do that work this morning. Because we know and we see in your word that you are the only one who deserves our worship. And so we pray that one of the fruits of this morning for all of us would be that you would weaken and destroy our worship of created things. 
and that you would strengthen and intensify our worship of our Creator and our Redeemer. God, help us not just know that you are worthy of worship. Help us feel the depth to which you are worthy of worship and help us choose then to worship you as a result of that. Would you let us worship you well as we come to your table, as we sing, and as we walk out of here and live our lives in the city this week. Amen.